could you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the type of science work that you do? Yes, no, thank you very much for having me too. I'm very excited. Uh, my name is Matthew Johnson. I've been at NASA Ames in the Earth Science Division since uh, late 2012, almost eight years or eight years now, which is uh, crazy. But I'm in the biospheric science branch, and uh, which is confusing because I primarily my research is focused on atmospheric chemistry and atmospheric sciences. Kind of stems from my background in meteorology from my undergrad in college. But atmospheric chemistry is a lot of looking at trace gases and aerosols in the atmosphere and how they impact things such as air quality and human health, um, looking at a lot of pollution, and also uh, looking at things such as climate, looking at greenhouse gases, CO2, and methane. And that's the focus of my work, uh, focused a lot on using atmospheric transport models, which is basically simulations of the atmosphere, mm. looking at emissions and transport and chemistry that occur in the atmosphere and connecting those models with observational data such as in situ measurements and most importantly from a NASA perspective is remote sensing and satellite imagery. Cool. And so we can take that apart a little bit um, but I'm curious to start out a little bit talking about you. Um, were you always so scientifically minded? What were you like as a kid or as like a young adult? <laughs> So my, <laughs> you know, my path in the science was an interesting one. So I grew up in North Carolina on the coast of North Carolina, on the barrier islands. They're called the Outer Banks. Most people will know Hatteras Islands, one of the you know, famous lighthouses. But we grew up right on the beach. So my childhood was, you know, very focused on, you know, surfing and fishing. And those two things, as a kid, even we were glued to the Weather Channel. Because you want to know what the winds are like, what the conditions will be like, and those are very important. So, you know, every morning and every afternoon, my friends would all meet up at one house. We'd watch the Weather Channel. That's before the Internet was really um, easy to get a hold of. So you had to watch the local updates that came on, you know, every eight minutes or so. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood thinking about meteorology. And when I graduated from high school or, you know, my junior year, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And, you know, my interest from my whole life was, you know, thinking about weather and meteorology. So I went to North Carolina State University where I majored in meteorology. Mm. Now, through, you know, my coursework and I started a little bit of undergraduate research. And when I started talking to professors later on in my undergrad, talking about, you know, employment and different career paths that you can take, with a meteorology background, we started talking about, you know, just the ability to get a job with a meteorology background is difficult because, you know, everyone, you know, is either, you know, you do the news or you do weather forecasting and there's just not a whole lot of jobs out there for that. So in some of my undergraduate work, we talked about air quality and pollution and how, you know, anthropogenic emissions and meteorology kind of mix to uh, impact air quality. And there was a lot more at that point, a lot more uh, graduate work at North Carolina State that was involved with atmospheric chemistry. And, you know, meteorology is very important for that. So it's kind of a nice transition. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went on to do my uh, graduate work and my Ph.D. work was in atmospheric chemistry. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you actually brought that up because that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of meteorology and they've watched the weather reports and watch their local uh, weather forecast, but atmospheric science uh, is something that we may 
throw around a lot uh, dealing with earth science, but not it's not heard as as explicitly. So you're saying that these are very related subject areas, um, but they're very niche. Uh, maybe could you talk a little bit about atmospheric science, like why it's a separate discipline to meteorology? Right. So atmospheric science, like my PhD is actually in atmospheric sciences, even though I studied atmospheric chemistry. So it's an all encompassing thing of, you know, meteorology, clouds, um, you know, atmospheric chemistry, pollution is all under the umbrella of atmospheric sciences. Gotcha. That's really cool. So you started at, uh, you know, where you were at, and then now you're over here on the West Coast. Did you do your PhD study out here? Is, is that how you were able to transition over to NASA Ames? So I started undergraduate research at North Carolina State University, and that rolled right into my graduate work and my PhD work. So I stayed at North Carolina State University for um, through undergrad all the way through my PhD. So that's um, on the East Coast in Raleigh, North Carolina. And coming out of school, you know, I did my PhD on, uh, I looked at atmospheric dust, such as stuff that comes off the Sahara Desert, and I looked at the chemistry and transport of dust. And so when I was graduating with my PhD, there was a couple institutions that were looking for people that had atmospheric transport modeling backgrounds, and uh, fortunately I did. And so I applied to NASA Ames. This is a pretty inter interesting story, actually. So I applied to NASA Ames, and, you know, I hadn't done my postdoc yet. And a lot of people do postdocs after the PhD. And so I was in Mainz, Germany, at Max Planck, interviewing and basically accepting a postdoc there. And I had applied to Ames not thinking I would get this position because I hadn't done a postdoc. And I was over there and got the email from NASA Ames saying, well, you know, come interview here one more time. I had been out here before and came out here and got the job. And I was like, you know, California is an amazing place. I love the weather. So I was like, you know, I'll go across the country and go to California. So that kind of what, that's what led me here to, to Ames. That's awesome. Good decision. Yes, I agree. It's, it's been great. Germany's great. I mean, Europe is great, but. The weather, you couldn't we have be good any different. And <laughs> good weather, that's right. Different. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yeah. Um, so going back to remote sensing and all of the this important data modeling that you're doing, why is it important that um, we monitor and really understand like gas emissions, especially on a global scale? Why, why is it important that we continuously take the pulse of everything that's going on uh, around our planet? Right. So remote sensing has a great capability of being able to see, you know, everywhere all the time. It's not that simple, but, you know, it has global coverage. And the other side of that is the in situ measurement monitors, which get very high accuracy measurements of trace gases and aerosols. But they can't see everywhere all the time. Most of them are on the surface. They can't see what's happening above or in locations where you just don't have measurements. And so using satellite data, you can actually see, you know, where the aerosols are, how much, and, you know, the trace gases, where there are not measurements being conducted by, um, by in-situ measurement monitors. So that's the really great uh, advantage of the satellites. Now, the, the data might not be as accurate, but it, um, the spatial temporal coverage is just unmatched. And combining that with the modeling data, it really is nice to have 
the satellite data to understand how accurate your models are because you use these models to really understand processes. So when you're talking about trace gases and the emissions, if you understand, you know, once you emit uh, some trace gases, where does it go, the chemistry that happens to you, and then how it can impact things like air quality, you really need models to understand these processes. But then you have observations from satellites, you actually understand how accurately your model is predicting these types of processes, which is, you know, very important to have. And adding things from, as you say, in situ, which would be like air, um, airborne science campaigns, like when you have instruments on uh, uh, airplanes that actually fly through these areas taking data, then you take that data that you get in situ in uh, as part of your data modeling. Is that how that the process works? Right, yes. Combining the remote sensing in the in situ is vital to really understanding these models. And that's what I've really focused on in my career is gathering as much information as possible from the observations from satellites and airborne and surface in situ uh, measurements to really constrain uh, and improve the accuracy of these models. And that's been a focus of mine for the last few years. Hmm. So what, what, how do I want to say this? When, so take us through like, I guess, part of your, maybe through like a validation process. So you receive this new data from satellites, from an airborne campaign, you put it into your models, and then you're looking at measuring different areas to enhance these models. What What is the ultimate goal? Is it to get the modeling better or is it to help with predictors and even help to mitigate some of these issues that we're having when it comes to climate change? Can it help for things like that? Can it help policy? Like what kind of things can we do with this this data? Sure. So it's a, it's really a good question, and it kind of leads into what I've been focusing on in my work the last couple of years. So I'll focus on a work that we're doing with the OCO2 science team, which is a NASA science team. And this does have some policy relevance, but it's also just important to understand from a greenhouse gas perspective. So we have these models and we have these emission inventories. And these emission inventories are our best guesses based on different countries how much CO2 we, we emit. And we put these in, the, in our models, and then we get a prediction of, you know, the concentrations of CO2 in atmosphere. But then what we do is we use the observations from OCO2, which gives you column CO2 measurements, and then we use a thing called inverse modeling, which basically is just using observations to statistically correct the emissions in your model. So you can use OCO2 to actually constrain and understand the accuracy of your inventories of CO2, which are used for regulatory and you know policy purposes. So yeah. these observations and in inverse modeling is, is a really important feature to understand your accuracy of emissions of CO2 and you know, other species as well. Mm. Okay. And to clarify, OCO2, we love to throw around acronyms at NASA, but OCO2 stands for Observatory Satellite. And I think that's because, is that, and then it's two, because there's also OCO3 as well. Correct. So is, this a, is this a sensor that's on a satellite? Is that what it is? Right. So it's the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2. Um, okay. And now there is three. And OCO3 is actually on the ISS, the International Space Station. Space Station. And then OCO2 is on its own uh, polar orbiting satellite. 
That's so cool. Um, I wanted to ask one thing about one of your recent publications and, um, yeah, there's just because you you started to allude to it with OCO2 and everything, but one of your more recent publications that hoping to do a, a nice write up about, but you were looking at carbon dioxide emissions during the 2018 Kilauea uh, volcanic eruption. Um, but what really what made this unique, um, and I I want you to talk more about this, of course, but you're looking at it from the OCO2 standpoint. You're able to pick up carbon dioxide data downwind from the original eruption site. So how did this publication really come about and what sort of findings can you share? Like why, why did this, why was this important enough um, to put in a publishable paper? Right. Yes. So we, we published this paper a couple months ago and as you alluded to, it was using OCO2 to constrain and predict or estimate the emissions of CO2 coming from the Kilauea uh, volcano. And the interesting thing about this is OCO2 was developed really to look at regional and global scale CO2 emissions. But recently, people have been uh, determining that you can actually look at point source or a single emission source of CO2 using this OCO2 data. Now, OCO2 has a very small swath because it has very high spatial resolution. So it's not really going to monitor any single emission source, such as a volcano. But during this eruption, we were lucky enough that one of the overpasses of OCO2 went directly over the plume of the Kilauea eruption and determined this large CO2 signal um, that was associated with the the eruption. And only one other paper had ever monitored emissions of CO2 from a volcano. And um, that that paper was actually from uh, Florian Schwander, who is actually – Uh, here at NASA Ames. But this paper in particular saw the signal of CO2 from from the uh, emissions, you know, almost 200 kilometers downwind, which is the first time this has ever uh, been noticed. And we were able to track this back to the volcano and estimate the emissions that are occurring using observations that were very far downwind. Now, this is really interesting because we want to be able to monitor volcanoes using satellite data. Now, OCO2 will never be that system because, you know, it has a very small uh, swath width. It has a repeat um, coverage of 16 days, so it only gets an observation every two weeks or so. So it's not really great for monitoring any one particular source. But now OCO3, it can point its sensor and actually take – more it we call them staring observation where it looks at one particular source and sweeps over that source and it can do that almost you know every couple days so leveraging the information we learned on from this paper using oco2 it'll help future um co2 observing satellites such as oco3 to kind of monitor and estimate co2 fluxes from from volcanoes wow adding continuously adding to the science conversation which is what we should be doing exactly yes right and you know actually this you know this paper actually has led on to another study that's being conducted here at um, nasa ames because what we also notice is when you have a lot of aerosol in these volcanic plumes which um, we did in this case 
it makes retrieving CO2 a lot more difficult. You know, the aerosols get in the way of the, of the sunlight pass and it makes the retrieval more difficult. So what we're now doing, a group of us, group of us here at Ames in collaboration with uh, JPL and others working on the OCO2 and OCO3 retrieval, um, using information from different volcanoes, using ground-based measurements and other satellites, we're then trying to improve the retrieval in high aerosol loads. So then we can, um, you know, get more accurate CO2 observations from satellites in volcanic plumes, in any other plume that might have uh, uh, higher aerosol loads. Yeah. So have you found, we've, we've briefly talked about this before um, uh, in another chat that we've done, but we, we talked about like interdisciplinary science and collaborative work in science. How, how important is that in your, in your field and just in, in your experience as a scientist? Is this important to do collaborative work? It is, in my opinion, one of the most important things. And it's something that I do quite often. In, you know, the, diff, the projects that I work, I personally work on are, are so broad. You know, I work on things from emissions of methane from wetlands to ozone chemistry to CO2 from volcanoes. And, you know, it's because I collaborate with a lot of different groups and I can apply my tools and ability to do transport modeling and inverse modeling to apply these different types of projects. And, you know, having these interdisciplinary science ability is really important because in earth science, We've gotten to a point now where we're really trying to understand minor details and, you know, really uh, lower uncertainties in our understanding in a lot of these specific processes. And in order to do that, you, it's no longer just an atmospheric science thing or a biospheric science thing. It's the interaction between these two different, you know, how the atmosphere and the biosphere interact. That's where we're at understanding now. So you need atmospheric scientists and biospheric scientists working together to understand these very complex processes. And there's so much data out there, you know, with different satellites and different measurements, you need to have people that understand how to use these different types of tools so we can get a better understanding of, um, you know, these, these interdisciplinary processes. So I think it's one of the most important things. Yeah, I agree with you. I've always wondered that because even, um, uh, as scientists, you become very specialized within your field, but is it better to is it better to be more generalist in some approaches, or is it good to become specialized and then just have a very collaborative interdisciplinary team so you've got different pieces working together? Right. And I think that's, you know, I think you know, I still feel like, you know, obviously I have a much stronger background in atmospheric science and my understanding of that. So having strong collaborations with other experts in different fields is, you know, very important. But you still have to understand as much as you can about that other field, too, when you're collaborating. You can't just put blinders on and not pay attention to <laughs> the other side of it. You need to try to understand as much as you can. But having true experts in other fields is how collaborations are really successful. Yeah. That's good, good advice. And speaking of advice, what kind of advice would you like to give people who are considering STEM career and maybe actually going into earth sciences? You had a very strong appeal with meteorology, as you talked about, 
um, surfing and everything and being on the beach and watching the weather channel. <laughs> but what kind of advice would you like to give to people considering this? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, it's a lot of work and to do the sciences, you know, get through your PhD and then do research uh, for your, your whole life. So, but if you really enjoy it, then all that work is really worth it. And going, you know, working these really hard problems every single day, it's, it's really enjoyable. So if you really, really, truly enjoy sciences and, you know, you should just, you know, pursue it as well as you can, take the right courses. One thing I would suggest the most to younger people going into atmospheric scientists or probably all the scientists, such as, you know, biospheric scientists or whatever, is, you have to be able to write in, you know, computer code, you know, computer sciences, big data, you know, this new thing, machine learning is really becoming very, very, very important in different fields. So understanding computers, computer coding, statistics is extremely important to be able to be, um, you know, very uh, understandable of different statistics and, those are the two main things that I would suggest to others is being able to write code in different languages and understanding statistics is extremely important. Cool. One last question for you before we close out. Okay. Um, if, if you weren't a NASA researcher, what do you think you would be doing today? And would it be a professional surfer? <laughs> Oh my gosh, you know, always joke around like if I could, you know, professional surfer or a professional golfer would be would be the life, but I'm not very good at either, so that's probably a problem. But you know, I always enjoyed teaching and I always thought that if, you know, I didn't get a job at NASA and maybe if it ended up at a university um that I would enjoy teaching. And even at the high school level, you know, I used to, when I was in college, I would volunteer and give lectures or teach a class at different high schools or middle schools. And I, you know, I really enjoyed that. So I really think if I wouldn't have ended up here, I would have ended up in either academia or just teaching at even uh, lower education levels, such as high school or middle school. But, you know, it's really nice that I ended up here at NASA. You know, we were discussing earlier being able to watch the uh, uh, rover landing uh, this morning or this afternoon and just you know it's just really great to be able to work at a place that things are happening like this in your organization so I you know I feel uh, very blessed to be able to be working here at NASA and here at NASA Ames so yes I I agree completely with you and it is we're one big family even though we're in different centers and everything so I completely understand what you're saying um, well thank you very much for letting me interview you today Matt um, absolutely cool learning about more about atmospheric science and i'm looking forward to seeing more of what you put out all right well thank you so much for having me